Family peace and greetings. Shalom, 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 shalom. Oh, yes. Greetings to y'all out there, man. How y'all doing out there, Susan Brothers? How are y'all doing out there? Oh, man. Most definitely, indeed. Culture Freedom Radio Network is most definitely up in this house right here for another broadcast for you today. Oh, yes, indeed. Uh, Just coming in the house right here, man, um, for another show I want to bring to you today uh, right here is an excellent excellent man going back into the archives actually man I want to bring you a interview that was done by Shaka Barashango Shaka Barashango uh, he was interviewing the late great Dr. John Henry Clark man one of the great scholars of our time and they was talking about the African spiritual concepts, the African spiritual concepts. Oh, yes. So this is what we're going to be presenting to you right here today on Culture Freedom Radio Network, man, going into those African spiritual concepts, because it seemed to be that a lot of us today, we don't seem to deal with, um, I was saying this conscious community, and, and this is no shots at anybody or no shots at really the conscious community, but just seem to be somewhat as a melanated people or um People here in America uh, today, we seem to be off balance or out of sync with our spiritual concepts or spirituality now, I would say, uh, here. A lot of people now, they're getting into the knowledge that's like the hell with uh, spirituality, man. I'm getting this knowledge and things of this nature, so damn some spirituality. But you have to understand if you say you stand on the shoulders of your ancestors, you are a African people or you are descended from those African people, they were always a spiritual people. I don't give a damn where in the East, that uh, particular part over in the East, in that area, uh, a lot of spirituality was going down. We might call it religion today, but there was no place, no nation, no tribe, nowhere where they then have some kind of spiritual practice, man. They might have different gods and this, that, a god for this and a god for that, but those people were always a spiritual people. Yes. So, um, just been throwing it in there. But yes, I want to just play it right here. And uh, one more time, y'all, before we get started. Tell you how you can always find the shows and link up and follow the shows right there on all the various distributing sites, such as iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, the Apple Podcast Store, and also right there you can find us and uh, on the uh, damn Pandora, y'all. I'm getting tied tongue. Like I'm getting ready to go play some football, and I know damn well with these old raggling these, I ain't playing no football. I ain't gonna even watch no football, y'all. But uh, anyway, uh, that's neither here nor there with that topic. But yes, you can find those right there and listen to the, the shows on all of those distributing apps uh, for Culture Freedom Radio Network. I like one more time, that's iHeartRadio, TuneIn Radio, the Apple Podcasting Store, uh, Spricker, and uh, not Spricker, y'all. Uh, Stitcher, and that's the other one is uh, Pandora. You can just find us, man. Google search Culture Freedom Radio Network, and you're guaranteed to find us. And one more thing right here, man. If you would like to get in contact with us, uh, the only social media site that you can link up with us on is Twitter. Yes, I did reestablish that Twitter page and reactivate the Twitter, so you can find us right there at Culture Freedom 9 on Twitter. That's at Culture Freedom 9 on Twitter or just go to Google. I mean, and, uh, damn, y'all, I, I told y'all I can't talk today. <laughs> Going so fast right here, I'm going to get a ticket. It's right there on Twitter. I don't know where the cuckoo come from. I guess I'm trying to cuckoo bird. Uh-huh, Twitter, cuckoo bird. Y'all know what I mean. Uh, but, but on Twitter, you can find us right there. Just put in in the search engine, Culture Freedom Radio Network, y'all. Yeah, Culture Freedom Radio Network. But it is at Culture Freedom 9 right there on Twitter. 
Oh, wait. I'm glad I ain't doing no talk show today myself, y'all, because I can't talk worth a damn today. I'm just going so fast. Uh, and let me see. What's it? One more thing. One more thing. Oh, and if you want to link up with us and follow us again and you have a question or maybe a topic you want Brother Aria to get into, you can find us on link up with us right there and send me an email that is at uh, gmail, on gmail at culturefreedom.org at gmail.com. That's culturefreedom.org dot org at gmail.com that is the way to contact us with any kind of information now um through the email one more time that is for comments your thoughts or something you would like for us to talk about or something you just want to share that you want us to bring to the show play something on the show you can email us at culturefreedom.org at gmail.com Y'all need to slow down. I need to slow down when I talk a little bit, y'all. I probably need some damn Ritalin to calm me down. But that's enough of me talking right here, man. Let's get into this broadcast right here. The late great elders, man, Brother John Henry Clark and Brother Shaka Barashango, man, talking about those African spiritual concepts right here on Culture Freedom Radio Network. Most definitely up in this house, up in this house. Peace be unto you, brothers and sisters. This is your brother, Ishaka Musa Barashango, at the office of renowned scholar, historian, actually dean of scholars, the one that we all look up to, the one that we all look to, and the one that we glory in because of his enormous knowledge that we have been able to draw from and that we, in turn, have been able to pass on to others. We're speaking of none other than Dr. John Hendrick Clark. This is a great moment for me indeed because I've had the privilege of working with Dr. Clark on several occasions. We have been on the same podium at the same time or in the same building doing workshops or seminars, but this is the very first time I've ever had the opportunity to appear on the camera with him, and I am indeed delighted. Dr. Clark, how are you feeling today? Fine, fine. Thank you so much for having this interview with us, and we're going to get right on into uh, the subject matter at hand today. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with the topic generally of the <coughs> African origin of the Bible, and we're approaching the Bible and its development from an African-centered worldview. Mm -hmm. And our first question to you, Dr. Clark, is uh, according to your great research, and it is indeed has been prodigious, how did the African see his place in nature and how did he see God and how did he express his concepts of God in his everyday life? The African saw himself in relationship to nature as he saw nature and God as one and the same and we must remember that for most of the existence of man the word God was not used and yet man had a great spirituality and a great affinity for the concept that man would later call God, Africa recognized that there was a spiritual force in the universe. He knew he could not make the rain, change the seasons, he could not make a hurricane, and he could not stop one. So he recognized that this force in the world was in charge, 
was a force bigger than himself, and he tried to bring man in harmony with nature, as against Western man, who often tries to defy nature. But he did not use the word God, and yet he recognized the spiritual force in the world that man would later call God. Dr. Clark, is, I've often heard throughout the years that this word God is used in the English word language. Is actually the word dog spelled backwards? Yes, and man was late in using it. And whether this is coincidental, I do not uh, know, but is somewhat ironical that that is the is the case because the God concept that we know came out of the conference in Nicaea in, in Europe 325 AD but the spiritual concept was always there, recognized by the African, who thought that the spiritual force that ruled the universe was in everything that lives. Therefore, the African would meditate sometime before cutting down a tree, because a tree was a part of life. It only cut down what he needed, and he thought that the spiritual force of the universe was in the water, so he could stand by the water and meditate or pray on a tree, and he could stand by the tree or in, in himself, so he could meditate within himself. And so he did not need a church as such, and he did not need someone to intervene between himself and the spiritual force of the universe because he thought that he was a part of that totality and he could communicate directly. Now, Dr. Clark, what is the difference between religion and spirituality? Religion is an artificial form that came later when man organized spirituality into forms and denominations into concepts and each group tried to prove that their concept was the true concept and the one most entitled to prevail. Now you see hypocrisy entering spirituality and killing its meaning. Now spirituality is the recognition of the spiritual force of the universe and the recognition of your relationship toward all living things and your responsibility toward all living things. I have examined a lot of African indigenous belief systems, and most of them are based on African spirituality as against uh, religions. In his spirituality, you do not discriminate. 
your wife can belong to one version of it, you can belong to another, and there's no conflict between you uh, based on that. And this was carried over into the United States because within my own family, I got nearly everything except the Catholic. I might have them now when I did have them in my growing up days, but we had uh, Methodists and, and uh, Holy Rollers and sanctified people, although we were predominantly Baptists. We were predominantly Baptists, and even our best religious jokes were about the Methodists because they got sprinkled instead of being immersed in the, in the water. See, with the coming of religion and denominations and churches and ministers, economics entered. Commerce entered. To have a church, you got to have someone to build the church. The church has to be maintained. To have a preacher, he has to be maintained. So once commerce entered, the Bible, the, the religion became a money-making entity with all of its pretense of holiness. And it could not sustain itself without funds. So it became a fundraising gimmick. And I say that going away from spirituality, which is the recognition of all living things in their worth, when in religion you give preference to your chosen denomination and people who adhere to your chosen denomination, religion has a sense of prejudice throughout. In fact, nearly all religions are violations of the God concept by dictionary definition. Because if you take the dictionary definition of God, God is kind, God is gracious, and God is nonpartisan, mm -hmm. which is just the opposite of religions. A Catholic will not concede that a Protestant is right or can be right. <laughs> That's ungodly. <laughs> it certainly is. So when you deal with the ungodly nature of religion, the Protestant nature of religions, the, the, the Protestant nature of religion, you can find out that uh, religions violate, sometimes by their very being, the concept of God. And truly one's uh, system of belief or their spiritual identification directly impacts on how they relate to others. Yes. So yes. what were the elements of African culture that demonstrated uh, our belief in democracy and true justice in our, the respect, our society? The respect for the family and the assumption that elders had lived longer than others, therefore... They were wiser in choices, and you created an atmosphere in which the elder automatically became wiser in making choices because you created an atmosphere where he couldn't be uh, corrupted. By virtue of being an elder, he, he got his sandals, and he got his clothing, and he got his food, and he was a professional thinker. Mm-hmm. And when you, when you had a difficulty, you went to him. 
to think it out and to resolve it. He had lived through youth and middle age, and now he's in eldership, so he had learned a lot of things. And yet he never charged you for advice, but you never charged him for the sandals and the food and the clothing either. <laughs> so it was a, an exchange that brought about stability. You always had someone to turn to. The uncle plays a major role in African family structures. So that family structure, based on these values, <laughs> there couldn't, there was no word for prostitution because no one had ever been one. Mm. And the idea was unthinkable. When you look at the structure of the society, if a lady is not married at a certain age, two families got together to see what could be done about it until they found a suitable man for her. Whether she found one for herself, they found one for her. See, this was, the, this was a period before the invention, I'm using the word advisor when I say invention, of the romantic, I love you marriage. Because that's where we went wrong, that's where we began to have trouble. Because the Africans' marriage was based on respect and bringing families together and sometimes bringing villages together. So when two people married, you had a whole lot of cows and goats and then came because each side of the family put together enough means so that they could sustain themselves and make sure they had land. And they didn't have to petition, they didn't have to go into debt, they didn't have to take out any, any notes. Now you belong to that particular group, and you expected by virtue of bringing children into being and by virtue of your behavior to enhance that group. And that group, by virtue of you belonging to it, protects you by making sure that you had the means of sustaining your family. If you didn't have enough goats, they would go to one family, you give them one goat, you give them until you got ten goats, you know. Mm -hmm. and the same thing that each 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 family gonna give you ten cows. So you you in you begin the marriage with twenty cows. <laughs> now how did that affect our sense of justice and fairness to it, it, it the sense of justice as much as it is understood that a human being has a right to live has a right to have the things that sustain a good life to keep the human being from begging for those human ma materials that makes human life livable mm -hmm. and basically comfortable. There was no great riches, but there was no poverty at all. If there was poverty at all, then that poverty was shared by the whole group as riches were shared by the whole group. Now, they already had what Karl Marx was advocating, a classless society. Is what the Dr. Uh, Chancellor Williams, peace be upon him, refers to as the African constitutional system. Yeah. Everybody's needs was looked after. Each according to his, his needs. Now, how was this uh, incorporated into uh, 
Christianity, or was were any of these principles incorporated into Christianity, and can they be in any way uh, identifiable, or are they manifested? In, See, in they were what what was covered into Christianity, idealistically, and verbally, was the African family's structure of doing to each one as doing unto others as you would have them to do unto to you basic uh, protection and when St. Augustine heard about the converts at Nicaea he said these people make me laugh they're giving us a religion we had 3,000 years ago mm-hmm. so now now let's deal with that then let's deal with the formalization behind a personality called Jesus Christ now St. Augustine was who for many people who may not know St. Augustine was the father of Catholic literature and he was instrumental in creating the intellectual literature, the basic theories that went into the making of the Catholic Church. Where, where did he come from? Where was he indigenous to? He, indigenous to North Africa. Was he he, he, was not, he was not Arab. He was not Arab. He was not Berber. He was African. So he's somewhere no in one's our a, ancestral line. Yeah, no one has proved anything uh, any different. I call St. Augustine the, the, the holy sinner because in his early life, he, like the ladies so much, he took a residence in House of Prostitution and lived there and sired a child there. And uh, like most men who tinge with a spot of hypocrisy, after that, he began to blame a lot of the sins of the world on women. <laughs> he was about exhausted by then. <laughs> but, but he did. But I think his confession and his other books laid the basis for intelligent church literature. And the beautiful simplicity of his writing. He's not complicated in his theory and his writing. Uh, there was a lot of great writers for the church who, whose writing is just too complicated uh, to, to read it, not, not for the layman, you know. And I've tried to read uh, St. Thomas Aquinas and, and, uh, and uh, Cece. And Justin Martin. Yeah. Uh, Martin Luther was uh, a little less confusing, but confusing enough. <laughs> Could it have been, Dr. Clark, they weren't clear themselves it, it, on, on it, what it, the it, Christianity was? Yeah, it might be. I think the beautiful simplicity in the writings of St. Augustine, you know, that he was, he had time to think things out, you know, himself, because between his uh, years hanging out with the ladies and he went through years of refinement and debriefing of serious introspection. Well, he was one in a, in a long line of African uh, church fathers yes, of the but, original African church. And yet he was uh, a little more significant than the three Africans who became Pope. Then there was the Tertullian and the Origen and yeah. uh, Cipriani, yeah. all of these being African. 
And that brings to mind the fact that the original church or Christianity as we uh, have come to know it was first established among African people. It Africa was established and brought into being by, I mean, the Christian church as we know it today. I mean, the Christian church. Let's make a distinction between the formal Christian church and the ideas of Christianity. Mm-hmm. That's a world of difference between that. Now, this is well documented in a book called Roman Africa. Um, um, Roman taxation and Roman imperial brutality made people question old religions and look to new religions. And they turned to myth and suppositions and brought into being out of myth the story of a resurrected Christ. What made them choose Jesus? And, and, and that also brings to they mind. Didn't, they didn't at first because he was never referred to as Jesus in his lifetime. Mm-hmm. Most of the writing about him occurred 80 years after his, uh, his death and that he began to run as Jesus the Christ. The very word Christ is not of African origin, it's from Krishna. It's more of Indian, East Indian origin uh, 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 than African. Well, Rogers tells us it's, it's, uh, that the word means the black one, the anointed one, because the, it the could well, one kissed of the sun was uh, mm, worthy of being the most anointed. It, it could well mean, mean that. Now, this uh, Jesus, who we know from the study of history, was a black man. Whose who's, who's picture we know. Oh, yes, sure, I who's think it's the proper word. Now, let's make a distinction between the physical Jesus and the picture that the Pope commissioned Michelangelo to write, to, uh, to paint in the 15th century. Now, at the Conference of Nicaea, where they lost the books of the Bible that they didn't want to deal with by putting them on the table and said that in the morning the books that God don't want us to use will be gone. <laughs> and so there were no lost books of the Bible. They were the books that was left out of the Bible, especially the book of Mary. It tells you what... Uh, Joseph said when he discovered Mary was with child, he knew it wasn't his child. Otherwise, they could not create the Immaculate Conception had they left the Book of Mary in there. Now, the idea of Immaculate Conception is old because in Africa, a woman could have nine children if her reputation is good and and honorable and if she's frequented only by one man the African will say that her skirt is clean, her mouth is sweet. She is virgin. So the idea of virginity has absolutely nothing to do with whether you have had a child by process of, of cohabitation or not. Because the Europeans now wanted to create something that had a similar purity they now would give a lady a child without having 
intercourse with a man. Well, this also have something to do with the fact that they, most of them were misogynists. They, they didn't want, uh, but they couldn't get around exalting a woman to a higher state in the Christian church because most people at the time that they were trying to convert to the religion was into the mother goddess concept. And in order to <coughs> elevate uh, Mary to that status, they had to take her out of the realm of humanity, so to speak. They had to make a super, supernatural Mary. And I think it's unfair to her because they had to dehumanize her by elevating her above human. Mm-hmm. And Mary not Christ, should be at the heart, the focal point of the Christian religion. Well, as ironic as it is, the Catholics in some way have done that. They have done that in, in some of their rituals, but they have steadily fought against even having a minor female administrator in the church. Now this person who eventually came to be called Jesus by then. The picture that we we get it wasn't painted until the 15th century. What was he actually like? What was happening in the Hebrew? He was a Hebrew, we know that. And what was happening with the Hebrews? What was the uh, dynamic going on between them and the Roman government at that time who were occupying their land in that little nation of Judea. Well, the Romans occupying their land until they got on the Romans' nerves and the Romans destroyed the last temple <laughs> at 70 A.D. Well, they say it was a hotbed uh, there, especially where Jesus was raised around Nazareth and Galilee, was a hotbed of rebellion. They were constantly carrying out some type of revolt. Well, they're still doing it. We're talking about people of the Hebrew faith as distinguished between people we call Jews. The word Jew had its greatest development in Europe. There are people of the Hebrew faith all over the world, in India and China and South Sea Islands, who never used the word Jew, who still belong to the Hebrew faith, and whose conversion to the Hebrew faith is older than that of Europe. The Europeans... Uh, Hebrews were converted in the 8th century, 850 or thereabout. Well, they felt that the Romans really had no right to rule over them, not only because they were invaders, but their law said, their Torah said, that only God ruled them. Only the Creator was their ruler, Th- this and ruled is, through their king that came out from their midst. But the Romans were no respecter of local customs or local laws. And even with the trial of Jesus Christ for sorcery, the Romans did not want a part of it. But because the Roman law, the crime of sorcery was major and therefore had to be taken to the Roman government. Minor crimes, they, they could try themselves. And so when they took him before the Roman uh, emperor, the Roman emperor realized that he was no enemy of Rome, and he wasn't telling Romans to give their money to, to, to the poor or turn the other cheek. He wasn't driving Romans from the temple. 
He was driving his own people. So the Romans had no vested interest in interfering with all of this internal matter between the people they had colonized. And so he pushed them back to the to to the crowd and said, He's your king. And they pushed him back toward the Romans, it's not my king. <laughs> so we see the essential beauty and loneliness of the story and and the man who eventually emerges, Jesus Christ, was one of a number of itinerant ministers roaming through the land at that time and who had the smallest amount of followers. Why did he survive? The others got lost. His people were then what they are now, great record keepers. And evangelizers. And they are also, when necessary, great record changers. Mm -hmm. And maybe some of the greatest liars under the eye of God. <laughs> now, the first uh, Christians we know were Africans, or the original church was first developed and its strongest hold in Africa. See, but the, the African Christian developed before the church developed as a physical body. I agree with what you're saying, but I'm saying that that was not the birth of Christianity of the African concept of Christianity developed before the church. The church in a physical sense began to develop when the Romans decided they could use it and therefore encouraged it after the Romans stopped killing Christians and began to join the church for political reasons. It probably was more economically expedient yeah. to join it than to continue the yeah. expense of and, uh, uh, and this, was, this was uh, when Constantine made the Christian religion, the religion of the Eastern Roman Church, and subsequently the others didn't, plus the fact that many Roman emperors were entertaining themselves on Saturday by seeing the Christians killed with the lions and the gladiators. And finally one Roman looked down in the arena and saw his, his uncle, so he didn't, he didn't stop the show. He says, oh, he's a widow, you know, let him know. Next Saturday he looked down, there was his, his wife and the child <laughs> willing to die in the arena. He says, stop the show. Let me investigate this thing. Well, uh, Constantine's own mother, Helena, had been converted to Christianity, and that had yeah. a great impact on him making that decision. Well, making that decision also with the, 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 the little-known people called the Essence. And the Essence were, in addition to being moralists, were vegetarians of that day. And they approached him by fornicating in the palace, and, oh, you know, he agreed to stop that, then they told him he'd have to stop eating red meat. Then he told them equivalent to go to hell with your religion. So they left him alone and said, all right, all right, all right. If you stop the fornication, you, we'll leave you with your meat, you know. <laughs> so then he tolerated it enough to make it the religion of the Eastern Roman Church, although he, he never really, with any degree of sincerity, joined the church. Now, St. Augustine has said in one of his writings that the true religion, which had existed from the foundation of earth, came to be known as Christianity. 
So he very well knew. Came to be known as Christianity. Right, he very well knew, obviously, that this was no new concept. This was no new thing. John Jackson is Christianity for Christ. Did a good job on this in his, another work called Pagan Origins of the Christ Myth. Uh, John Jackson is so terribly underrated. Because John Jackson was a cynic and, and, and one of God's angry men, but. A man of superior intelligence. Yeah, and, and a fine memory of almost everything that ever touched his life. And died an angry, disappointed man. But he was my friend for more than 50 years. I, too, learned so much from him. I never got to meet him in person, but from his writings. Mm -hmm. And his writings would prick me so mm -hmm. I would sometimes have to go for weeks mm -hmm. just wrestling with the point of view. When I first read Man, God, and Civilization, I had to wrestle with that book, mm -hmm. but it opened up a whole new area of enlightenment. So but I, see, he, in just his own writing, he introduces you to other writers that you need to investigate. Mm -hmm. Jackson introduced me to Joe Massey and Alvin Boyd Kuhn and writers of that nature, pro-African Europeans that Europeans still ignore. Now, when this, uh, when Constantine finally, when he decided that he was going to take this, what he considered to be a new religion, and now use it to revitalize the empire and also use it as a, as a mechanism to control the mind. He said the only way we can do this is to have an orthodoxy. If you have an orthodoxy, that means the people cannot are not allowed to think or question beyond a certain yeah. level of belief. But How this, did he go this, about that? This, by really designating certain priests to interpret the Bible, the Bible wasn't widely read or widely circulated. The Catholic Church up until the end of the 19th century, a lot of Catholic laymen didn't even read the Bible. They had it, they had it interpreted to them, but they didn't read it. Either you had the blind faith and to believe what the priest said, or you weren't a good Catholic. Well, I understand that uh, in some places the Bible was chained to walls and only certain priests could read it, not even all the priesthood could. Mm -hmm. And uh, you could get varying degrees of punishment if you were caught reading it, even up to death, depending upon what your station was in life. Mm -hmm. And this went on for many, many years uh, throughout Christendom as it was dominated well, by the Catholic Church. Most Christians don't know it today don't know the different versions it went through before it was changed to the final version it's in, it's in right now. Well, some folks say, well, since it's gone through all this, since it's been polluted so much, what do we need with it? What can we do? Why don't we just throw it away and start all over again? Is it, should we do that, or what should we no, do with it? I think we should try to understand it as part of religious literature and mythology, but I question the intelligence of anyone who thinks the Bible is true or supposed to be true. St. Augustine said the same thing. He said, anyone who takes the book of Genesis literally is accrediting to God 
those attributes that are not worthy of him. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, most of the book of Moses was written after Moses was dead. Now, there were men and women during closer to our times in antebellum slavery or during our captivity that went to the Bible, which had been denied them. They were not permitted to read the Bible on pain of death, actually, mm-hmm. by their mm-hmm. captors. But when they did get to it, when some quote-unquote uh, well-meaning white person would teach them a text mm-hmm. or something, mm-hmm. they had a unique interpretation that was relative to their situation. Among them, we think of men like uh, the right Reverend Nat Turner and Reverend Gabriel Prosser and Denmark Vesey mm-hmm. and Harriet, uh, right Reverend Mother Harriet Tubman and people like that. But then Bishop Turner at the end of the, Bishop Henry McNeil Turner at the end of the century. And Henry Harlan Garnett. Who used it as a revolutionary weapon. So does that say we can take it now and use we it can, as a tool for liberation? Right now. We can use Islam the same way, if we would. But religions are authoritarian. And there's such things as religious fascism. And some ministers have turned it into that. A way of dominating the mind and controlling the body. Dr. Clark, we, we certainly thank you for this opportunity. This has been a wonderful and enlightening session. Mm-hmm. And in closing out here, I'd like to for you to just sum up in your own thoughts, feelings, and words mm-hmm. the subject matter we have been discussing here and share with us uh, that mm-hmm. which you think would help it to take us to the mm-hmm. next stage of mm-hmm. understanding in this. See, a discussion of religions in general and Christianity in particular gets us into the question is what can we use for our own liberation and the maintenance of liberation once we achieve it. And what is good for us is what brings us to that point of liberation, independence, and maintenance. When I say independence, I don't mean independent to commit crime, independence to violate uh, morality. I mean to be free of exploitation, to be free of being demeaned, and to have the right to project yourself as a part of the totality of, of history. We have to restore the humane apparatus to religions that has been extracted by explorers who have used religion the wrong way. I think uh, we must use religion to give the world a new humanity. But we have lost the meaning unless we understand that we must first give it to ourselves because you cannot change the world until first you change yourself. I think all religion is good depending on its application and all have the potential of being bad depending on its uh, poor uh, application. I think all of us should have the integrity to make that uh, distinction and apply it for the good of ourselves and for all humankind are given each one the right to choose 
the interpretation that suits uh, that particular case without demeaning that the interpretations that suit other cases for um, other people. I have long ago left the adherence to any form of organized religion. And I belong to an African uh, belief system, and I am comfortable spiritually with that belief system that furnishes me the integrity and the spirituality and the support that I think I need in, in my life. And because this is a humane belief system, I'm not ready to deprive others of having a, an opinion different from me, but I am also have the nerve to, to let others know that once any belief system that fails to serve the basic human needs of people and the basic protection of people is open uh, to question, and I'm not above asking uh, that kind of question. In other words, you see that bringing spirituality back to religion. Yeah, bringing spirituality back to religion, and religion will become nonpartisan and not clannish and selfish. Thank you again, Dr. Clark. Brothers and sisters, we have just had the opportunity and the great privilege of uh, engaging in an interview with Dr. John Henry Clark, Dean of African Senate Scholars and great African thinkers, uh, whom we have the privilege of walking the planet with in this day and time. We pray that his work will continue to be blessed by our ancestors and by the Creator, and we pray that he will be with us for many, many years to come because he is a great treasure to us all, greatly beloved by all of us. Thank you so much for being with us. This is a part of the ongoing series of the African Origin of the Bible. Thank you again, Dr. Clark. Okay. This is one, you, I have been like a little child uh, on his way to a candy store all day because mm -hmm. I had never been on camera with you. Mm -hmm. And I was really looking forward to doing this. Mm -hmm. so I, I am so glad. Well, um, I'm sorry that I, I just got the message this while I was away in Philadelphia that my tickets for the conference in London has arrived so late I thought they'd forgotten about it. And Thursday, uh, early in the morning, to uh, complete this interview with Reverend Dr. Shaka Musa Barashenko. <laughs> as long as you've known me, too. Uh, Dr. Barashenko, we're trying to look at the political, economic, and cultural conditions of the Hebrew Israelites during the time that Jesus would have been on the scene in Palestine. Uh, and the Roman occupation. What would it be like? Kind of give us an overview of one, why Rome, number one, uh, occupied that area. What did they gain from that occupation in terms of its wealth, or perhaps its food products and so forth. And what was the uh, socio-political climate like 
what, why did the people rebel? So what were they treatment? Uh, give us uh, an overview. Well, the Romans were there because they uh, needed to be able to feed their armies. And at that time, uh, the yield in Palestine was very great in terms of grain and food crops. Uh, it was a part of the Fertile Crescent. Of course, we know the most abundant uh, arc in the Fertile Crescent was the one in the Nile Valley in Africa. And they had also conquered uh, Egypt, uh, as they called it, or Kemet as well. They even went to try to go further south to conquer the Cushites, or whom they called the Ethiopians, but the battle was so great that was put up against them as it was led by the Queen Mother. In fact, they say this particular Kendaki, this Queen Mother, in 27 BCE was the date. In fighting the Romans, she, had, she had, was struck in the eye by an arrow, and her eye was hanging out the side of her head, and she still fought the Romans for the rest of the day. They say the Romans won that battle, but they were anxious to sue for peace, and they granted the Cushites anything that they asked for because they wanted to get out of that land. They really didn't want to have to fight these people anymore because they doubted that they could win a battle against them if they fought them again. So now their efforts were stepped up in Palestine because they needed the food there. So they crushed uh, the Israelites in Palestine. They became the overlords there. In fact, they came in actually as partners to help one group in a dynasty fight the other group in this Hasmonean dynasty. There were two separate families fighting for who would rule the throne. And I think it was Aristobulus who called them in to help him against the other faction of his family, and the Romans in turn uh, ended up taking over the whole thing and appointing their own uh, king who was Herod, who was not even related to the Hebrews. So that was their primary reason for being there. Now, the Romans uh, were not really known for anything in the ancient world except their strict laws, which were enforced by their military power. They had a, a very complex and efficient military machine. That's what they had going for them in their favor. In terms of intellect, they had never been known for that. They had to get their intellect from the Greeks, who themselves admitted that they got it from the Africans. But the Romans had that organizing skill. There's something like the Germans of today. They had that organizing skill. So they now come into Palestine. They are overlords in Palestine. And they're ruling over a people who are very difficult to rule over because if you are a foreign uh, uh, a ruler, if you're a foreign potentate. Because they believed, according to their laws, the laws of Moses and the Torah, that no one was to rule them but Almighty God. And that they, Almighty God would rule them either through their king or their judges or their prophets or their priest. But whoever the ruler was in the land, they had to be uh, connected with them as a people, born out and bred by them as a people, and practice, at least claim to practice, their religion and their culture. And they said as long as they were not ruled by someone like that of their own, then they were in disfavor with God. And therefore, to get back in favor with God, they had to have sovereign independence. Those two things were one and the same in their thinking. So they kept a holy war going on consistently, a stubborn holy war against the Romans. Now, they did not have the, the arms and the might 
and the organizational structure that the Roman military complex had. But they did have the tenacity. And they fought what we know as guerrilla warfare, which is very effective when you have a smaller force or ill-equipped force fighting against a more advanced or sophisticated force. You use guerrilla warfare. And they, what was the Roman army like, chariots and so forth? Can you kind of explain it? They had something called a pillow, I think, or whatever. The flanks. The flanks, the Roman flanks was very difficult to break. It was, uh, they would send out, I forget, I believe it was a cohort. It may have been a more, about a, a, a cohort of soldiers. And they would come in this flanks, and they would march with these shields, these, these uh, rectangular shields mm -hmm. with uh, like a spear point on them. They would march with these shields. When they got in place, when you would shoot arrows at them or throw spears at them, they would turn those things in precision and form a flanks around them. They would form a, a protective coat around them from the sides, from the front, from the back, and the top. The ones in the middle put theirs on the top, and the ones on the side turned theirs to the side to their flanks, and the ones in the front turned my front. And that was very difficult to break them that way. Their cavalry was very good. They had expert cavalry. And of course, their charioteers were outstanding. Most of their charioteers were from Persia, or from uh, out of Africa, or some land of bla where black people lived. That's where many of their charioteers came from. And their most outstanding legion, the greatest of all the legions they possessed, in their army was the 10th legion. And that was the African legion, the leopard men. So Rome had a multicultural army. Well, yeah, like most uh, governments will get anybody to fight for them. They had Germans, they had a German contingency fighting for them, they had a Gaul contingency fighting for them. Any place where they had gone and had taken conquest of the people, they uh, conscripted those people to go to war for them. Just like any imperial uh, state does, just like America does that. All imperial countries do that. And Rome definitely was an imperial country. So they, and they ruled well, uh, stringently, very stringently. And when they came into Palestine, which is actually a part of Africa, they didn't come with any women. Very few of them had women. A few of the officers or the governor may have brought his wife with him, but they didn't have any women. So they took the women by force who were there. So there, there was a struggle over that because the men didn't want them coming in and taking their women. You had a group that went to the mountains and fought from the mountains. This group was known as the Zealots. They were the freedom fighters uh, of that nation. They were beloved of that subjugated nation, and they were supported by the people of that subjugated nation. They mostly, their headquarters and their hotbed was in the hills of uh, countries of Galilee. And Nazareth was one of their main places where they came to get their supplies, where Jesus was, was raised up. That's where they came to get their supplies. So they constantly waged war against the Romans. Now, at times it was more intense than others because when uh, Tiberius Caesar, who was the Caesar or the president of Pax Romana, as you would call it, of the Roman Empire at that time, sent Governor Pontius Pilate to be governor over that region which incorporated Judea, Syria, and I think a couple of other places and provinces, provinces. Judea was a small nation within it, but Judea showed of itself as separate and apart from all the rest of it. 
When he was sent there, one of the first things he did was take money from the temple treasury, which was forbidden. And even the Uncle Tom preachers, who were these uh, Pharisees that you heard Jesus uh, uh, riling against so much, you scribes and Pharisees, uh, because of their betrayal of the people. They were the Negro preachers of that day. And when they took the money from the temple, even the Pharisees now, who were generally kept the people in check, kept it from being an overall outright people's revolution and uprising, they now even began to join the zealot movement and to fight against the Romans. And the, the thing which was the camel, the, the, uh, the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back was when Pilate came in and had an eagle, a Roman eagle, placed over the temple, which was the center of worship for the Israelites in Jerusalem. And that's when everybody became involved in rebellion against them because that was a, de uh, 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 a desecration a sacrilege that was idolatrous as far as they were concerned and they would die rather than offend their God so the, everybody went to war and that rebellion was led by one Judas of Galilee Yeshua uh, Ben Judas of Galilee was his name and he led thousands upon thousands against them he was taken it was in the year 6 CE the one whom you call Jesus may have been about 12 years old then. And he had to, on a particular day, a very sad day in the nation of Judea, he had to walk home through a row of crosses that these black men were hung on because as we have talked about before in previous sessions, the Israelites were black people before and they were black people then. You had some admixture there, but not to the degree that it later became. And so, on those crosses hung approximately 2,000 men who had been in rebellion against Rome. That's how they punished those who rebelled against them. And at the head of that was uh, Yeshua ben Judas of Galilee. And this obviously made quite an impression on the young mind of the Yeshua ben Joseph, or Jesus as you call him, uh, the Christ as you call him, that we know of in, in, in uh, the New Testament. So um, what the Romans said was this. Tiberius said, look, Pilate, we can't afford this because these people are hard to rule in the first place. Mm -hmm. And it's taking a lot of expense to, to rule them, and it's actually not cost efficient mm -hmm. if we have to keep fighting them on this level. Mm -hmm. And we can't keep fighting them and fighting all over the empire to maintain the empire you cannot go in there and do anything that is opposed to their religious sensibilities. Leave them and their religion alone. So how did they have the people, what did the Romans make the people do? What was life like under Roman domination? Uh, under Roman, let me just finish this point here, where Tiberius says to Pilate, don't you ever do that again, because if you do that again, I'm going to recall you from this post. And I may even send you into banishment, because you're costing the Roman government money. So there was agreement made with the preachers, the priests, the Pharisees, that we won't do this desecration anymore if you keep these people in check and quiet them down from carrying this rebellion out any further. So that, that again, was a, a source of a problem when Jesus and John the Baptist rose up. This was a thorn in the side of the Negro preachers who wanted to keep everything cooled out, wanted to keep the people from going to war. As a matter of fact, you remember when they took Jesus to 
the Romans, and when they had him on trial, before them, before they took him to the Romans, they say it's better that this one man should die than the whole nation. Yes. They were afraid of those Romans. They didn't have a case against him, but they said, look, we can't have him run out here stirring these people up like this. We made a deal with these Romans, and we have filed through on this deal. That was the political situation. Now, the Romans could conscript your house. They could grab you and make you carry their burdens for a mile. And later in the book of Mark, it comes up with this lie that Jesus said, if they tell you to carry the burden a mile, offer to carry another mile. If Jesus had told those people something like that, they would have left him. Nobody would have come out to listen to him at all because he would have gone completely against the sentiment of the people. And there was no way that he could be popular among the people and not speak to their desire for freedom and liberation from those Romans. Uh, they could come and take anything virtually from these people they wanted to. They could go in these people's houses and get their wives or, or daughters or anything. A lot of that went on. And uh, many uh, 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 Hebrew Israelites died trying to defend the honor of his woman or his daughter or his home before these Romans. So they made the people work and they took the crops. Explain that. It was a form of enslavement. It was a form of bondage. They subjugated the people. And when a, people, a person comes in as a captor and puts you in captivity and subjugates you, then they treat you all kinds of ways. They don't treat you as a human being. And they were not treated as human beings. And they were very unhappy people. And that's why every child, that male child, that came first in the family, they, most of them was named Yeshua, which in English is Jesus. And uh, in Matthew it says, And thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Mm -hmm. Now people think you're talking about uh, fornication or, or smoking or drinking or adultery or, 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 or stealing or something. It wasn't referring to that. It, sin to them was an imbalance. The word meant imbalance. And as long as the Romans were ruling over them and not a king who was there as, to stand in the place of their God ruling over them, to rule as a representative of their God, as a son of God. That's what they call their kings. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't unusual for Jesus to be called that, and it wasn't the first time. As long as that wasn't happening, they were living in sin. Because they say we have to be living in sin because we're in God's disfavor. And, and if we're in God's disfavor, that means we're doing something wrong. And the thing that proves that we're in God's disfavor is that a foreigner is ruling over us and making us do all sorts of things that we would not be doing, things that are contrary to the laws of Moses and according to our culture and to our morals. So that's the kind of situation you had there with those Romans and the Hebrews. And it was a very unhappy situation. It was not a friendly situ situation except in those few cases where I said you had the Pharisees and maybe some other people who would collaborate with the Romans. And when that was found out, the people stoned them and did all kinds of things to them. Or they would send the Sakarii. The Sakarii were the dagger men. They were the elite forces among the zealots who moved at night. And they would assassinate those who had betrayed the people. You would hear a dude walking down the street, uh, a, 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 a priest, a Pharisee, and you'd hear a scream in the night. And you'd see him laying there with a dagger in the center of his chest, but you wouldn't see anybody. Because they could come in and they could leave. They, they, they could fade into the night, into the terrain. So Jesus now is born, and let's, let's talk about Jesus. Let's talk a little bit about his, Jesus' background. You know, he went into Egypt and he was... Um, 
um, um, went to school at the age of 12. Well, where did he go to school? And what, what did that scene? Let's talk about them. Then he comes on the scene. And what is he trying to do? What is he about? Well, we know that he spent at least several years in, in Africa, on Kemet, in the Nile Valley, which is called Egypt. Just exactly what period of his life this was done is, is debated much among scholars. We know that in his infancy he was there, because that's where his parents went. Whether he was taken back at another time or not, we do not know. But we do, uh, I know that Dr. George G.M. James says in the book Stolen Legacy that Jesus had achieved the level of the hierogramic in the mystery system of the Nile, the high cultural mystery educational system, which was that he had studied the eight books of Tehuti. Now, I have never seen any documentation to corroborate that, but from the things that he taught and the things that he did, he obviously possessed a knowledge that was not common in Israel at the time, that no uh, rabbi could have taught him in Israel because they did not have that advanced a, a culture, as you would find in the Nile Valley or in India or in Persia or even in Babylon. They had not advanced to that level. So he, to be able to do the things he said, uh, to, he did, and many of the things he said, which were not original, these things were said by Buddha, these things were said by uh, Akhenaten, these things were said by Amhotep, um, uh, uh Patahotep. I mean, these things have been spoken many, many thousands of years ago. And you have to, therefore, have been taught in their institutions or by someone who had been trained in their institutions. What more than likely happened? was that Jesus was taught by the Essenes, who were like the Buddhists, were like Buddhist monks there. They, they lived a very, uh, um, they lived a life off away from everything else. They uh, lived, what, what type of life? A kind of monastic life they lived. Um, and they didn't get caught up in many worldly things. And the knowledge which they possessed and what you find in their writings in the uh, Qumran uh, uh, rediscovery they found in the Qumran Valley there of the Dead Sea Scrolls, their uh, writings and their commentaries on those scrolls, on the book of Isaiah and the book of other prophets, show that they had a knowledge which was far greater than that possessed by the normal Hebrew Israelite at that time, and that that knowledge was somehow linked with the knowledge that came out of the Nile Valley which in all probability their uh, order was established by priests from the Nile Valley because they had established uh, and given the authorization to Solomon to institute many of these teachings in Solomon's temple in the day that that was built. So it was a very common thing for this close-knit relationship between the Nile Valley high culture scientist priest the Israelite priest and priest of many other nations. Because the Nile Valley was the source of all knowledge at that time, and the University of Waret, which the uh, Greeks called, the, uh, uh, um, uh, not the Luxa, the Greeks called Luxa, was the center, the hub of all knowledge and learning at that time. And most everyone had to refer back to it or, or get their credentials from there or get their accreditation from someone who had gotten their uh, credentials from that institution. Now, I've heard that Jesus was bringing about a revolutionary movement, a, a, uh, a socialist or African-based way of living. What, 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 
was his teaching? What was he trying to do? How did he go about it? His teachings was a cacophony of Buddhism, Judaism, uh, the old Nile Valley teachings. Uh, so much of what he said was said by Asar. Uh, uh, as you find in the Book of the Coming Forth by Day by Night, Mr. Naman, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, or by Heru. So much was said by Buddha, I mean definitely. You can see the teachings of Buddha and what Jesus had to say. Um, you look at the movement he structured. You look at the 12 basic people he had there. The 12 basic lieutenants he had with him because he had 127 actually who were the people who were the ministers of that movement. But there was a basic 12, and within them was another core group of three. And among them was Simon the Zealot, who was, zealots were known for their militancy against the Romans. And when you look in that group, you will see a motley of people from different kinds of institutional bases or philosophies of life within the Hebrew-Israelite or Judaic structure. So it looks, it seems as though he was trying to pull together a black united front. Because he was supported by all these groups. Even some of the Pharisees who couldn't stand the fact that the other Pharisees were collaborating with the enemy joined unto him. In fact, he had to be buried in a Pharisee's tomb. Nicodemus and Joseph of Arimathea were great followers of Jesus. And I probably supported him economically. Many of the women in his movement were married to men who worked in the governmental structure. And they would be what we would consider today to be GS-10s, GS-15, GS-17, as high as that. Some of them, one, one worked as, uh, high up in the, in the cabinet of Herod. So they were well-to-do. They were middle-class people. So these women were able to follow Jesus around. And, and, and the uh, book of Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, tells you these women were the ones who put the money in the movement. So they were financed. So he had a, com a, a you know, just a complex of different people from many walks of life and you can that's a movement and it wasn't called Christian Christianity it was called the kingdom of heaven was its purpose kingdom meaning government of heaven not in heaven note the words the kingdom of heaven is at hand and it was called the Nazarene party because he was called the Nazarene the Nazarene from the word nostrim, the Hebrew meaning keepers of the nation, guardians of the nation. And that's what he had. There was no Christian church or anything at that time. And that Nazarene party had incorporated in it people from the uh, Pharisaic party, people from the Zealot party, people from the Essene party, from different parties. So it was uh, like an umbrella for all of those parties to come up under this movement. It was a political party because the aims of the Hebrews were political as well as spiritual because they did not separate the two. The, spirit, the political aim was also a spiritual aim because they had to fulfill the will of God for them. And in their minds, the will of God for them was to live as a sovereign, independent people following the laws of God as they were revealed to them through the laws of Moses. Now that was their understanding at the time. 
anything else being said to them would have made no sense whatsoever and would not have been entertained, not even for a moment. Jesus would have been laughed at as a clown. He certainly wouldn't have had these crowds of people around him like he had. And the reason why these people came out to hear him because there was a great expectancy. They were looking for a deliverer to come. Had he not extended to them some hope of that, if he would, had said to them at any point that, look, I'm not interested in your desire to be free of these Romans. I'm not interested in your political goals and aspirations. I'm only interested in making everybody love each other and we get ready to die and go to heaven. Those people would have left him out there by himself because they were not interested in anything like that. They, they just were not. So this was incorporated later into the New Testament. Some three, four hundred years later, people made Jesus say this because they needed to use these documents now to placate and to keep under control the masses of the people once the Roman Empire adopted Christianity as an official religion. It was therefore used to keep the people tranquilized. No, we want to get to that, but, but didn't he, his party was the Black Panther Party? Just... No, what, what it was is the symbol of the dynasty that he was born to. He came out of, if you look at his uh, uh, genetic tree, his genealogy, you will find that all of those people in there had been uh, uh, of the family of Hasmon, of the recent, uh, I'd say about the last 10 or 12 of them, of his... Uh, uh, um, predecessors of, 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 of uh, those he descended from, his ancestors. They were of the family of Hasmon. Hasmon was the great father uh, out of which came the Maccabean family, which made a strike for freedom and got it from the Syrians who were subjugating them at the time in the year 167 BCE under Judas Maccabeus and uh, his brother John and, and several others, Judas Maccabeus, meaning Judas the Hammer, there. And they struck for freedom and established them as an independent nation until the Romans came later and subjugated them uh, uh, there. Uh, when there was a fight between one um, member of the Hasmonean party and the other for power, then they called the Romans in to help, I think it was John Hyrcanus, come into power. Or it was either John Hyrcanus or Aristobulus. I forget which one it is. But anyway, one was called against the other. And when the Romans did come in and take control, then they took the power from him as well and gave it to a foreigner, an Edomian named Herod. There. So now, Jesus' uh, family line in terms of as a dynasty was the Hasmonean dynasty at the time. And their symbol of their household was a panther, a black panther. Now I got that from the writings of Godfrey, Sir Godfrey Higgins in the book Anacalypsis. And he uh, seems to substantiate it very well because this panther, black panther symbol went all the way back to ancient Greece. Bacchus, their god of wine and, and dance and singing, also had a black panther as his symbol. So it was a very popular symbol in the ancient world. So you might say there was a Black Panther Party, even at that time and in that place, 
if you go by that symbology. Okay, now let's move on um, to Jesus um, um, and his movement um, and as it began to, it was only three years old. So what are some of the things that happened during this time? Several things. One, one, uh, one of the things, too, that must be kept in mind is that even though the Gospel of Mark does everything it possibly can to apologize for the militancy of the Nazarene party and to separate the Roman Christians and these other people who are coming into Christianity now from the Nazarene party because they're scared to death at this time because this book is written after the Romans came in and tore up Jerusalem and burned it to the ground not leaving one stone upon another they're so afraid now that this Gospel of Mark comes out and says no we don't have anything to do with those fighting people over there we are turn the other cheek kind of people we are nonviolent, pacific, you know pacifistic people we don't have anything to do with that so they now put words into Jesus mouth that he probably didn't speak but when they put it into their mouth it becomes contradictory to what other words they say he spoke such as I'm sent only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel which says he was a separatist a woman came to him for healing who was a Syro Phoenician woman she came to him for to heal his daughter and he told cut through this whole long thing about you don't give the crumbs to, of the children to the dogs I'm sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and it's only after she persists that he says, all right, I'll do it. And after his disciples said, you better get away from you because she's calling the attention of the Roman soldiers around here, mm -hmm. that he does it. He goes on to say to them, go only unto the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Cover all of the land of Israel and carry the gospel and then shall the end come. He doesn't tell them to go to the Greeks or the Romans or anything. He also says to them, the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violence presses it by force that's a very violent statement there I've heard preachers try to do all kind of exegesis on it and they still can't get away from the fact that he says the kingdom of heaven is taken by violence and the violence presses it by force there's another occasion upon which he says now is the time to sell your clothes and buy a sword what would be the reason for that if you're not going to use that sword. So you have, you have a contradiction there. They say, well, when Peter cut the man's uh, uh, ear off and Jesus put it back, this was a part of the thing of trying to separate Eurocentric Christianity from the Nazarene party. The question has to be asked, what was Peter doing with a sword in the Garden of Gethsemane if Jesus was nonviolent? He wouldn't have let him carry a sword in there. And why did Jesus say just before going into the Garden of Gethsemane that now was the time to sell your cloak and buy a sword? Why did he go into the temple and commit a violent act of driving the money changers out of the temple? That was not a nonviolent act. And there was no way you were going to get them out of that temple unless they were afraid of you, unless you had some show of force, which obviously had some contingent with him that had some military thrust to it. So these are some of the things you have to keep in mind. You're showing a, a, a schizophrenic personality here. He's violent on one end. He's telling you that in order to get what you're after, the kingdom of heaven, you have to have violence. But on the other hand, you're telling me that he's nonviolent and that he's opposed to violence and that he's a pacifist. So you have a contradiction right there. So he, he, he 
He builds a movement. Go. Let's let's take it from there. What, what he builds a movement. Highlights in his in his life. And the movement becomes very very strong. It becomes a popular movement among the people, and this is why the Negro preachers are concerned. Now, they may not have been able to take Jesus because they had attempted to take him before. They sent soldiers to arrest him, but the people were so strong and pressed around him that they came back and they said, well, what happened? They said, never a man spoke like this before, but they couldn't take him. They were afraid to take him. The reason why they were able to get him this time, it appears, is that when Jesus did go into that temple, which was obviously a, uh, a move to take the temple, which would therefore take the control of the economics that those Negro preachers had at that time, because it was at festival time, they was coming up on the festival of the Passover, so a lot of money was changing hands in Jerusalem. People from all around different parts of the nation were coming to Jerusalem. Is that he his forces got bottlenecked there and he lost out because they had attached to that temple they had a, a Roman uh, uh, um, not a cohort but they had and not a legion but it was a company of Romans who were assigned to protect it to protect these Negro preachers and they came down and what probably happened is there was a swelling of his forces, the zealots and so forth, and they got bottlenecked in that, those narrow passages leading into the temple precinct. And they were cut off from the main body of their forces. Now, Donovan Joyce says in the book that Jesus scrolled, and it seems most probable, that his son was taken and arrested. Barabbas, because the word Barabbas means father, son of the father is what it means. And in the uh, old, and even in some of the newer translations of the Bible now, they put it back, Jesus Barabbas. It means uh, Yeshua, son of the father. That is, he had the same name as his father. In all probability, he may have been the son of this Yeshua. Donovan Joyce lays out the case that Barabbas was taken, being the son of Yeshua, or whom you call Jesus, there was a deal made, you can take me in place of my son. Because there is no tradition in all the writings of the annals of the Roman Empire, and they wrote about everything, of them letting go of a political prisoner at Passover. They wouldn't have done that. This man was dangerous to them. There's no tradition of the, give us Barabbas. Should I give you Jesus Christ or Bar give us Barabbas? No, no such thing probably happened. There was probably an exchange of Jesus for his son. And in fact, since Jesus was the one who had, at this Last Supper, people don't understand, this Last Supper was an inauguration ball. And he was being anointed. When this woman anoints his feet with this oil, they say, well, she's anointing my body for death. That was spikenard and saffron that was used only to anoint a king or a high priest. Jesus, therefore, had been accepted by his family in the Hasmonean dynasty, had been accepted by the elders of the, Ju uh, of the tribe of Judah as the next legitimate king of Israel. Now, what he had to do was to take that political power. He had to take that power by force. And obviously, he failed at that and was taken captive through betrayal of Judas Iscariot, or someone. Now, when Jesus is finally charged by the Romans, he is not charged with being a sorcerer. 
he is not charged with calling himself God because nobody really cared. The Romans had so many religions, they could have used another God. They didn't care. He wasn't charged with any of this by the Romans. He was charged with stirring up the people. It's a very clear. He stirred up the people. In fact, Pilate said, I believe these Jews are trying to set me up. I think these Negroes are trying to set me up and make Tiberius Caesar angry with me and call me out of here. I'm not going to buy into this. I don't have nothing to do with this man. I don't see where he's done anything wrong. They said, well, he has offended Caesar. And if you don't condemn him, you're not a friend of Caesar. So here Pilate's caught in the middle here. So what did he do? He says he's a king. He said, well, isn't he your king? He said, we have no king but Caesar. That's all we have. We don't have any king. So Pilate decides to interrogate him himself. Pilate says, look, I don't go along with all this stuff. As far as I'm concerned, you're an innocent man. My wife has dreamed that you're an innocent man. Said, so don't take any part of this. And I'd like to let you go, man. But I got to find this out. Are you the king of Israel? And Jesus looks at him and says, you said it, brother. Or, and we would say, sure, you're right. He said, well, if you're a king, where, where is your kingdom? He said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. And I have forces and legions you know not of. So people thought he was talking about angels coming out of heaven and everything. What he was talking about is those forces in the hills, in the Judean hills, that Pilate didn't know anything about, had heard about, but didn't know how strong the force was. That he was not interested in the Roman Empire. He was not interested in being linked to the Roman Empire, that his kingdom was separate and distinct from that. Pilate understood that very clearly. And finally had to condemn him to death for asserting himself in treason against the Roman government. Because only a king who was appointed by the Roman imperial powers could rule in Israel at that time. Because they were being subjugated by the Romans. And Jesus carried out to the fullest that he was a king. In fact, he had been adored and given all of the uh, um, manifestations that a king was given when he rode in on the donkey that time into Jerusalem before going into the temple to clear it out. Mm -hmm. These people are saying in the Gospel of John, long live the king. Hosanna to the son of David, which is a title for the king. Hail to the king. Read the language. It says that very clearly. They say, oh, the son of God has come. Or they might have said that too because son of God meant king to them. It didn't mean somebody out of heaven somewhere. And they uh, didn't say, oh, here's a savior who's going to die and bleed for us and save us from our sins. They didn't say any of that. They said, Hosanna to the king. The king's here. Our nation will be free now. The one we have waited for has arrived. He's here. And after the Romans crucified him, they put over his cross in three languages. They put his name, King of the Hebrews, or the Jews as they called him, which was like saying King of the Niggers. Because that's what a Jew was a, a, you know, a, a derogatory term like that, same as nigger is today. So they put it in three languages, so they let you know what their concern was. We're not killing this man for any other reason that is he's usurping, trying to usurp power from us. Try to take back power from us. That's all we're concerned about about him. And that's why we're killing him. That's why we're getting rid of him, because he had too great of influence among the people. And then we see his disciples walking along later, several of them on the road to Emmaus. And they said, we thought this was the one. 
We thought he was really going to be the one to liberate because they had seen so many men come as messiahs and be crucified. They said, we thought that this was going to be the one. And then, of course, you know, you go on from there and they build around this, the idea that he's still alive. This mysterious person says grace with them and says it in the same way that Jesus does when he blesses the bread, which is the way all Essenes monks said it. Blessing. And he said, oh, wow, did not our hearts burn within us while he spoke to us? He is the one. And then there's this mysterious meeting on the Mount of Olivet where nobody really gets to see or touch him. Except they do talk about him coming into the room and Thomas putting his finger into his side and all that. This is later written by Luke, who is a friend of Paul, who is supportive of Paul's idea of Jesus, which is completely opposite to what Jesus was about historically. But that's another whole study in itself, the Pauline Christianity. It's so much different and was always opposed to the apostolic Christianity of Peter, James, and John and the other disciples. So now, uh, this Jesus is mysteriously standing on the side of a mountain and he just disappears on this cloudy mountain. And they said he had descended up into heaven. But it takes them 50 days to figure this out. Because they're up in a room for 50 days now. And they're saying, what happened? What are we going to do? And it's, they're struggling with each other over this because it is not until the day of Pentecost that they're on one accord. So that meant they were not on one accord for 50 days. They're debating this issue of where do we go with this movement now? What do we do now that the leader of the movement is dead? What are we going to do? How do we carry on or should we just let it go? And it is on that day that Peter stands up and speaks to all of these people. There are thousands of people gathered in Jerusalem there because it's for the celebration. And they're speaking many languages because they come from many nations. The Hebrews that come from many nations. And he speaks to them in a tongue that they can all understand. And uh, so the scripture says, and he preaches to them that Jesus, that the one whom he was crucified is not dead. He still lives. He's among us. He's with the Father in heaven. He's safe. Seemed like they came together with a formula that would work to keep the people's spirit up. And that is they have been killing our messiahs one after the other. They have killed this one. What shall we do? Say, so make this one eternal. Make this one eternal. They did the same thing with Viva Zapata. In our day, when Viva Zapata was shot down, 150 federales shot him down in the square, in the, in, in the piazza, in the plaza. His horse ran away, and you could see his horse in the distance, rearing up as though the rider was on him. So the people said to each other, that's not uh, Viva Zapata, that's not Emiliano's Viva Zapata, this is... Emiliano Zapata. He's on the horse in the mountains and he will direct us from the mountains. That's what happened with Jesus. And they carried on. They kept that movement on and swole that movement up in spite of the fact that Paul came in and started something altogether different, which we have discussed in the tape, uh, The African Origin of the Christian Church. But in spite of that, that Nazarene party continued to lead them in uh, a outright revolt against the Romans until it swelled in a, uh, 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 66 CE, or what they would call AD, of the Common Era. And they had to bring an army against them under Titus, General Titus. The Roman legions came against them, 
but uh, the was it Tiberius who was in? No, Tiberius was long gone then. I'm trying to think. Wasn't Caligula? I think it may have been Caligula at that time, but don't quote me. I forget who was the Roman, uh, uh, the Roman uh, Caesar at that time, emperor at that time. I get them kind of confused, man, in, in their order of uh, uh, how they came in. I think it was one before Nero, I believe. I think it was before Nero. Anyway, the, he calls his forces back. The Roman, uh, the Caesar, the emperor calls his forces back to send them to Gaul or somewhere to quell an uprising there. So the Hebrews think, and the Zealots said, man, we don't want this. They'll never come back messing with us now because we put a beating on them. Because they did go and catch the rear end of the uh, Roman guard and just tore it down. They just, they, uh, you know, they just axed them. They, they, they beheaded, they killed them. So they said, we have our liberation. And for four years, they did have it. But the Romans came back again, this time in the Vespasian. And he came back with a larger contingency. And this time, they brought with them the feared, the uh, indestructible, uh, uh, Tenth Legion is what it was called, the Leopard Men out of Africa. They brought Africans to subdue Africans. And they tore Jerusalem down to the ground. The people had put up such a resistance that the Romans were so angry they burnt the thing down to the ground and leave one stone on top of another. Over 100,000 people were killed in there. They said blood flowed like up to the horse's halter through the streets. That was the kind of siege that was laid to that city. I forget how long the siege last. But it was an awful thing. A lot of black people died in that. And those Hebrews were very stubborn people. And they would die for what they believed in. But it didn't even stop there. The zealot movement went underground. And it continued to go on. And it wasn't crushed until 135 of the common era when the Romans took down the great fortress of Masada. That's when they finally crushed it once and for all. So here we have now a resistance that's going on even before Jesus is born and continues to go on even after he is crucified because there are other men after him who are also killed by the Romans, assassinated by the Romans who also carry the title of the Messiah, or as they say in the Christian terms, Christ. There was uh, Yeshua bin Bukakba. Uh, there was Yeshua bin uh, Menachim. There were many of them. Yeshua bin Thaddeus. There were a whole lot of them who came after him, who the Romans also assassinated for their uprising against the people. Just let me ask you a couple of questions in regard to uh, uh, some of the scriptures. Uh, Jesus on the uh, temple wall where Satan um, uh, offers him uh, the whole kingdom um, and that kind of um, biblical um, symbolism. What was going on? Well, it would probably a uh, temptation to acquiesce to the powers that be. Just like Nat Turner went through that. Nat Turner, when he was called, he ran away from the call. He did not want to strike a blow for freedom and from slavery. He was frightened, and he ran away from it. And then the Lord made him come back and take on the task that he had called him to do. So here now, Jesus is going through a temptation. It's an hour of temptation. Here now, you are being, you're becoming the leader of a people 
uh, uh, who are subjugated by the mightiest military force in the area at that time. But the only force that could beat it was the Kushites. That was the only one that could give it a hard way to go. And uh, the Parthians could give it a hard way. They had whipped the Parthians over and over again, too. So here you had this power, awesome power now. And you have your people divided as to whether they should fight against it or not, although they're discontent and want their liberation. And then you had these preachers telling them, just be cool and do the rituals, and God will deliver you one day. You got all this you have to face now and come up against. And here you are, a humble little prophet from a family that is not wealthy, and you have to go out in the midst of all this, and you have to be a leader to these people. So that's a great temptation. So what he's hearing is this force of evil saying to him, if you bow to me, if you bow to Rome, if you just go along with the program, I'll give you a strong position. I'll even give you Herod's position. I'll make you king. You know, I mean, you, you're the rightful ruler anyway. You're the Hasmonean dynasty. I'll put you on in there. But you got to follow my program. So that's, that's, that's what he's dealing with. And also he's dealing with sustenance and survival. He's hungry. You know, he's been on a fast for 40 days. And the thing that really di that, that directly deals with the people is that which sustains them and gives them nourishment. When they don't have that, many times they can take their will to fight. And so he's tempted on that uh, uh, note. And then he's also tempted to, uh, to curse God, to bow down to the powers to be as God, bow down to Caesar as God, bow down to me, the devil, as God. Uh, because, you know, if you were the son of God and if you were God's chosen, he would help you now. He's not here to help you. I'm the only one who can do something for you. You're in my power. You're in my grasp. So he had this temptation to go through there. And he's, he's now seeing the condition of what he has to try to build from, having nothing, almost. And he's shown all of the finery of the world. He said, look, I, look what I got. And I can give this to you. You ain't got to go through all this struggle and building a movement and trying to get the people to follow you, build a popular movement and all that. It's already here. But you got to do it my way. And Jesus would not do it his way. They come up with this thing about, they come to him and ask him, should you pay taxes? Which is a test question from the people, because if he said yes, the people would have put him down instantly. Because they felt they shouldn't be paying the Romans' taxes. On their own land, on that which they produced. And if he had said no, the Romans would have locked him up for tax evasion. So what did he say? Who pitch you on the money? They say Caesar. They say give unto Caesar that which is Caesar, unto God that which is God. And what he was saying is this money doesn't mean anything to us. It has Caesar on it. It has no value to us. The thing that has value to us is the land that produces the wealth. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That belongs to God. And God gave it to us. And told our father Joshua that every... Uh, a uh, place that the soles of our feet should touch would be given unto us. So this is God. So that's what you've been done to God. This land, the freedom of this land. Let Caesar take his money or anything else he may have. Now, was, uh, as a priest, an Egyptian priest, and some say that, uh, that Jesus was an Egyptian priest, could he have done 
some of these miracles that are ascribed to him, heal the sick, walk water, things of that nature, because it has been said that the priesthood couldn't do these things. Well, what if he acted like a Kemenitan priest anyway? Then this story had been told about so many people as well. But let's say he could do these things, that he had the, the knowledge of how to do it. What appears to people that they don't understand is considered to be magic or miraculous, if they don't understand the scientific principles behind doing it. We know that the Kemetan priest had the ability to levitate and to levitate things. I've seen people even today who just had a little practice in that be able to take a big strapping brother on a chair and just put their fingers together, a group of them, and put all the points together and lift it off the floor. Now that's a very minor thing, but it's the principle of levitation. So have, have he, if he did indeed have access to that kind of knowledge, which he probably did, if he didn't get it directly from Africa itself, he received it from the Essenes who had received it from there, then he would have been able to do many of these miraculous things that they talk about. Now, but it wasn't unusual because he said himself he wasn't the only one doing this stuff. That there were other people. He said there were other people who were doing it who had came to deceive the people. So it was no, that wasn't the thing that made him, uh, if you want to say, well, this makes him the son of God or this makes him different from any other man because he was doing this, these miracles. Because he, he admits that other people were doing the miracles and that people would come after him and do the miracles. And that his disciples, even after he was gone, would do greater things than he had done. So that must mean that they would have been exposed to more knowledge than he had, obviously. Now, if we can, very quickly, because I, I know your time is limited, Let, let's talk about the, um, um, the overtaking. What happened after Christ was died? I mean, the movement continued. There was resistance. Uh, people fed to the lions and then eventually became a state religion. But kind of go through that and give us kind of a capsulization overview. Well, what had happened is the Apostle Paul, when he had come along, and that's a long story, and I do go into some detail on that, on that tape, uh, African Origin of Christianity. The Apostle Paul had started up something that was completely different from what uh, the Apostles were following and what Jesus had taught. Paul had never met Jesus. Paul, he really was, they were at odds with one another. That's where the statement coming from robbing Peter to pay Paul, you know, because they were really at odds. But what he had going for him is he could read and write in eight different languages. He was far more educated than the disciples. So he could write his down and his could survive. You see. And he began to write his letters and, and, and incorporate his doctrine uh, about the idea of Jesus before any of the gospels were written. Well, what was Paul's motive? You know, Paul was Saul, and he was really persecuting churches. Was, was he, did he... At first, at first, uh, he was per persecuting these uh, Nazareans, but he says that on the way to, on the road to Damascus, he met with Jesus, and Jesus told him not to do it. What he actually had was an epileptic fit, because anybody who has studied theology in the background of, of biblical history knows that Paul suffered from epilepsy. And I think he himself alludes to it several times in his letters. So uh, he had an epileptic fit and a sunstroke. And coming out of that, he became quite a deluded person. And the one thing he, and he felt guilty about what he was doing. And now he wanted to be a super Jew. He wanted to be a super Israelite, but he was not trusted. After spending three years in Arabia on the desert by himself, 
He formulates a doctrine. He doesn't go to see the disciples. They have to make him come see them. So what happens is he formulates his own idea about it now. And whatever internal struggle Paul is having to reconcile himself with that internal struggle, he now comes up with this idea of this uh, satyr or this dying savior God, which is very Greek. And within the Greeks, of course, had gotten it from the Kematans. But it is not Hebrew. The Hebrews had no such concept at that time. So he takes this and he attaches to it the fervor of the Nazarene movement and he takes it to the Greeks and the Romans. And he's an excellent salesman because he sells it to the Greeks and the Romans. And when the apostles at Jerusalem who had been with Jesus and who had studied with Jesus for three and a half years and unto whom the movement was bequeathed, call him in to challenge him because they're saying you're not teaching what Jesus said to do. He stops along the way in Thessalonica and Corinth and in Rome and all of these other places and in Ephesus and he picks up money from these people. And by the time he gets to Jerusalem where the headquarters of the Nazarene movement is, he has all this money and the Nazarene party is broke. Just like the nationalist movement of today is always broke. So he says, look, this can't be all bad because I got all this money. So the brothers get together and they say, well, look, we don't care what you teach the Greeks and the Romans. And they lay down some stipulations to, you know, deal with their authority. You know, as long as they don't eat flesh that has been strangled and they do some of the other dietary laws and things like that. They said... But you go ahead and be the apostle to the Gentiles. Because Jesus didn't send us to the Gentiles in the first place. He sent us to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But you keep pumping this money in here. But what happened is, after the destruction of the party, and as the party remained under such great attack and the destruction of Jerusalem, the Christians in Rome and in the Greek cities and in the Asian cities did not want to be identified with the Nazareans because they didn't want the Roman government to come down on them. They didn't want to be seen as uh, the uh, purveyors of sedition. So they said, we're not connected with that. And that's when the book of Mark came out. There. That was the first gospel to be written that we know of. Matthew, even though it is uh, in priority in the New Testament, was written after uh, Mark, actually as a counter to Mark to put the thing closer to its uh, Hebrew-Israelite perspective. Yeah. So that's how all that came about. And a very fine work that gives you some detail on that is Jesus and the Zealots by a white theologian, Dr. George G, no, Dr. S.G.F. Brandon. S.G.F. Brandon. Jesus and the Zealots is the name of the book. Now it can be difficult to read sometimes. You have to bring yourself to it because he's talking strictly theological jargon. So, and you have to kind of know that. But if you go to somebody who knows that, they can help you with it. But it gives you enough clarity there to show you how this movement that was originally a, milita a militant movement was co-opted and became a uh, pacifist movement. You know, and why they thought that was very important at that time. Because the Romans were on a rampage then. And there was nobody called Christian until it was decided to be called Christian in the city of Antioch. So Peter, James, John, and all of them were not considered to be Christians. Um, maybe not even Paul, because they say Paul and Silas was there, or Paul and Barnabas was there. But historically, 
the, it was the uh, uh, Appalachian Christian was not applied until maybe, oh, maybe 100, 140 CE at Antioch, maybe even longer than that. But even that had been done by the time of Paul, Jesus certainly couldn't have been called a Christian because he had been crucified. He had been assassinated by that time. So he, had, he never called himself a Christian. He never talked about Christianity at all. You know? He never even talked about anything but Judaism. And people get confused because they said, upon this rock I build my church. Not understanding that the word church is a Greek word, ecclesia, which means a place of gathering, a place where you organize and unite. And it could have been used for a political gathering. It was usually for community gathering. It was only later that it began to take on what is called, quote-unquote, sacred overtones and to be used exclusively for religious services. So that's, it's a long story from then on. Because Christianity did not happen overnight. It took a lot of bloodshed. It took a lot of debate over it until it was finally settled by the sword. Not by prayer, not by the Holy Spirit, not by God, nor by Jesus. It was settled by the sword of the armies of Emperor Constantine of the East Roman Empire in the year 325 of the Common Era. How was that? That we discuss, we discuss in detail on African origin of the Christian right, church. We have that. Then let's just close out then with looking at the early church here um, among slaves in America. We want to get a, a look at the militancy of the early church and how uh, black people, uh, Africans here, um, were introduced to Christianity or reintroduced to it. but kept some of their Africanisms and how they saw it and, and came to use it as a, um, as, a, as, a, as a weapon. Well, about the time of the destruction of Jerusalem, I just got to go, I have to go back there a minute. Christianity went in two different directions. It went toward the Romans, the white folks, the Greeks and the Romans, and it went deeper into the heart of Africa. The one that went deeper in the heart of Africa was a Christianity that was more akin to the Nazarene movement. And even though it developed a lot of the mythology, it was not in sync with the Roman Christian church. And it was the strongest Christian church in the world. What, the, the African church, the one in Ethiopia and in uh, uh, what they called Egypt, in the Nile Valley, the Coptic church. And the outstanding personalities of that, the early church fathers was, uh, uh, I don't remember them in their order, I think Tutelian, uh, Cipriani, Origen, I believe Origen was first, no, he came behind him. I think Tertullian preceded uh, them, then was Cipriani, the Origen, uh, St. Augustine, um, Perpetua, all of Nebotius. You had all of these different, I don't, I don't remember the exact chronological order in which they came, even though I've written about it. I don't exactly remember what the chronological order, but I know Augustine was the one who came in about the fourth century. You know. but there, and he was the most outstanding of them all and the most learned of them all. Tertullian was responsible for the Latin language becoming the language of liturgy, the language of the church there. Because it was very, it actually came out of the Punic language, which was the uh, tongue of the Carthaginians or the Carthardians, as they should probably be called. So it was, it was originally out of the root of an African language. So he, he was responsible for that, and uh, he was also responsible for dividing the, 
Old Testament and the New Testament for setting that distinction. Because really there had not been fully developed the New Testament at that time. There were just a few books, 13 letters of Paul, uh, the Gospel of Luke and the Gospel of, of, of uh, and the Acts, the Gospel of Luke and Acts, which was written by the same person, Luke the physician. And John Marcion in 140, a Syrian Greek, uh, introduced that because he said the Old Testament talked about a God that was just too violent. And he wanted a sweeter God, a tenderer God. So he didn't even use Matthew or any other. He just used Luke, Acts, and the uh, 13 letters of Paul, which shows that he was more in tune with the Pauline uh, doctrines of Christianity than he was with the apostolic doctrine. And I mean, this was a great debate, which drew much blood and was partially settled at the Council of Nicaea, not totally settled, because the debate went on for several hundred years more there. And well, how was it settled, Nicaea? Uh, by the authority of the emperor. The emperor said whatever they called in the 325 bishops. And he said uh, Africans were included, and the Africans were in total disagreement with the other bishops, and he threw them out. 310 bishops, I'm sorry. They threw the Africans out of the council because they were not in, they didn't accept this thing about Jesus being born of a virgin. Without the help of a man, they didn't accept this thing about because the relationship between a male and female in terms of cohabitation was very sacred to them. So they, saw, they didn't see this as an evil thing, that he had to come through, the Son of God had to come any other way than by the seed of, and they said the text said he came by the seed of David, you know. Um, they didn't agree on Xmas as his birthday. Uh, they didn't agree that Jesus was one in the same power and essence with God Almighty. There was a lot of disagreement there. And they were driven out of the council. And what uh, the, uh, the uh, European bishops decided on, that is what Constantine said would be the official doctrine of the Catholic Church or the universal church is what they began to call it at that time. And any other doctrine would be heretical. You would be considered a, her a heretic and punished accordingly. So it was backed up by the power of the sword of the Roman army. So they slaughtered many of the African bishops. They slaughtered them and they slaughtered anybody who was contrary. Somehow, this idea that the Africans had under one name, Arius, spread up into Germany. And they slaughtered the Germans over that. They didn't settle that problem with those Germans until about 5-something, 538 CE, before they actually fell the last Gaul, and Frankish and Germanic uh, tribes who were still following the concepts that these Africans had about Jesus. And that's when the Catholic Church came into complete power at that time. And this doctrine was the one and only doctrine and no other doctrine would be tolerated or entertained. And that's when it began to be called the Orthodox Church. And anything other than this is considered to be a sin against God and is punishable with the severest punishment even unto death. So the Coptic Church was uh, more in line with uh, traditional African religion? Yes, and it stayed primarily to itself. Actually, the, uh, uh, the European Church always wanted to get in contact with what they call this mysterious creature called Pre Prester John, this priest king who lived in Africa. But it was so distant to them, it was so exotic to them, because they wanted to enlist his aid against fighting the uh, invading uh, Saracens, as they call them, the, 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 the Moors, the uh, uh, Muslims. And also the uh, Muslims were given the Christian, the uh, African Christians hell and taking over their land. 
So they had to band together at one time. The Byzantine Empire had to ally itself with the Africans and the Africans with the Byzantine Empire, which they never should have done. Because the Africans actually provided more of the strength of the military force then. But what happened, and they could have held their own, they could have held out, they've always been able to protect that Red Sea corridor. But they did align themselves with it, and in the end, they lost culturally, although they maintained a lot of their culture in the process, much more than many others. But the Roman church became the church, and the dominant church from that point on. And that, I think, is a good place for us to close that, because we're going in a whole nother dimension of this which is covered in uh, the African origin of do, the Bible. Do we have time just to deal a little bit with the early black church? The black church, yes, of course. I went back to that to show that we had always been able to adapt any kind of philosophy or doctrine to our needs as a people. And if we found ourselves subjugated to somebody, the doctrine made no sense to us unless it spoke to our need to be free. Thus it was here on the plantation. Even though our first introduction to Christianity, or Eurocentric Christianity, because we have to make a clear distinction here, uh, and the imagery of Eurocentric Christianity, and the white supremacy attitude of Eurocentric Christianity, was on the plantation. Our first introduction for most West Africans to Christianity was on the plantation. And we know that your captor never teaches you anything that will liberate you. Only that would further serve them. But in spite of that, we took this same thing that had been corrupted and somehow we found an identity with it. Somehow we went deep into our historical selves, deep into our spiritual being and reconnected with it the way we first knew it before it was taken over by the Roman army and co-opted by Europeans. And we therefore began to retranslate it in terms that were useful to us so that we have such great Christian theologians, such black liberation theologians as the right Reverend Nat Turner, the Reverend David Walker, and, and the Reverend Gabriel Prosser, and the Reverend Denmark V.C., and the right Reverend Mother Harriet Tubman, and the Reverend Sojourner Truth, among many others. And then you bring it on up to Henry Highland Garnett. He was a minister. He was a reverend. He was a Presbyterian minister at that who said, let your motto be resistance, resistance. Mm -hmm. And that God didn't make you to be used by somebody else or to be a slave. And there was Henry McNeil Turner, who was a minister. Mm -hmm. The Reverend James Jasper in Richmond, who they arrested him and put him on a train, and the train wouldn't move, and they couldn't figure out why the train couldn't move. They checked it out. Everything was in order, technically. They went back there. James Jasper was praying. They said, that nigga's praying. Stop him from praying. And when they shook him, the train moved. So that's how powerful these black ministers was because the church didn't start out as just a place for us to sing and shout and feel good. It started out as a place for us to organize slave revolts. And it was the only kind of institution that would be permitted by white folks because they thought we were setting up something that would continue to perpetuate Eurocentric Christianity. And when they found out that it was the hotbed for the planning of slave revolts, then they passed the law that the only way that a, you could have church on the plantation is that if a white minister was present. And the text could not be chosen and read by the black preacher. It had to be read by the white preacher. And the black preacher repeated to the people. 
And the white preacher only read those texts that said, slave, obey your master, and all that, which was supposedly written by the Apostle Paul. Because you can see if he did write them with no friend of the Hebrews or us either. So that's what, and it was later co-opted. It still remained. The black church is always, no matter how it is co-opted and brought into the status quo or to serve the controlling forces or to collaborate with them, there's always that element of the black church that is in the process of resistance. Dr. King was produced by that. Uh, the Nation of Islam was produced by that. Malcolm was produced by that. Uh, Johnny Youngblood was produced by that. I am produced by that church. You know, we come out of that uh, liberation to Ben Chavis. Uh, all the people who espouse the doctrine of black liberation, the gospel of black liberation, come out of that. Because that is the true root of the black church. And whenever it strays from that, it is no longer serving the people. And the people then have to go and make that church come back and serve their needs. And this is the church that it will make it from the 20th century to the 21st century. The church that continues to espouse Eurocentricity and uh, the uh, plantation theology will not survive into the 21st century. Because the knowledge of our true history, the true knowledge about Jesus, about all of the religions, is just bursting and exploding all around us. And the youth are not going to accept things on blind faith. It must appeal to their logic and reason. Even though they may not fully understand it, they know what they're hearing is not satisfying and is not changing their condition from what it is to what it ought to be. They look and they see the same condition persisting except for a little change for a few black people here and there. And that itself is precarious because at any time they wish white people can take whatever that is, whatever so-called gains we have made with just a stroke of a pen or any such thing that they can change their law. These youth can see that. And they say, how can you stand up in church and say, look what God has done for us, how good God is to us when our communities are going to hell? Now, true, God is good to us. The Creator is good to us. But we must use more than he woke me up this morning because he woke the Ku Klux Klan up this morning too. And that's not good for us. Everything woke up this morning that woke up. So we thank God for that. But more than that, we must realize that the scripture said, I made you to be the head and not the tail. Thou art to be above only and not beneath. And that the only way, just as the Hebrews in Jesus' time believed, and Jesus himself obviously believed, that you could please God, was to live a quality of life that is in harmony with what God intended for his people to live. To enjoy the bounties of the world. That the Lord would trust in the Lord and he would give you the desires of your heart. And if our communities therefore are corroded and all this evil and all this dope and prostitution, all these, this waywardness and the killing of our youth of each other is in that state, then we obviously are not following the principles of the Creator. Because if we were living by those kind of principles, that type of activity would not continue to exist. Well, you say, well, the devil's doing it. Then you're saying that the devil is more powerful than God that you go and pray to and testify to every week. Because you testify to all this goodness, but when you come back, what you experience is just the opposite. But you cannot blame this on the Creator. You must blame it on us, who have not carried out the will of the Creator, which is 
to take faith and change our condition from what it is to what it ought to be and to do it fearlessly. We claim to believe so much in God, but yet we fear white folks more than we have the respect of the Creator to do what we're supposed to do. To even take a stand when we know something is wrong. Now, if you really had all this belief in God, you can take the stand because you know that the Creator is going to be with you and protect you and carry you through it. But if you don't take that stand, that means you have put the white man in the place of God. That's a very serious thing we have to consider. Thank you, Minister Brown. I really have enjoyed this session with you. But I have got to get on up the road. <laughs> okay, let me... Man, I wish my man was still here to drive me over there, but I'm going to have to beat a path. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. VGW Group, no purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus.